Hey there, welcome to Non-Fungible Human with Dr. Owais Durrani, where we chat with thought leaders, influencers, and newbies at the intersection of Web 3.0, the blockchain, NFTs, and life. Well, thanks so much for willing to chat with me, Benji. You are a product manager, if I'm correct, at Molecule. And I'll kind of give you a quick kind of background. I, you know, kind of went down the NFT rabbit hole in a very non-productive way, I would say about two years ago. And I realized like a lot of things I was doing, like buying stuff that kind of looked cool and whatnot was kind of non-productive essentially. I was like, well, there's going to be a deeper layer to that. And that's when I kind of realized that it was not about kind of these buzzy terms, but about the core technology, which is blockchain and that's what everything is built on. And I realized, or I came to the realization that that can change every aspect of what we do in life. So that's economics, that's banking, that, that's real estate. And then of course, that's medicine. And that's my day to day. And so naturally kind of went down the path of how is this going to impact healthcare and pharmaceuticals and uh, things of that nature. And I've, you know, had some great conversations around a lot of the potential around how that can be done. And Molecule was one of the kind of companies that came to the forefront in a lot of conversations and kind of looked into what you all did. So if you want to give me just a quick background of what Molecule is, and then what your role within Molecule is, and we can kind of go from there. Sure, that sounds great. And I think we can even start higher level than that, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Which is to say, which is to say that all an NFT is is a digital representation of something. And so if you're trying to trade NFTs, which a lot of people on the internet are, they're just trying to get rich quick, then you do something that's very noticeable and you can demonstrate a scarce. And so here are kind of the initial use cases of NFTs, which is just people just trying to flip images that someone created that they can use to show off their wealth or membership in some sort of club. But if you think about what the core technology enables, it's the ability to have an identifier for anything in the physical world. So this could be the deed to your house. This could be the registration of your car. This could be the intellectual property of a medicine. And I know that's a bit of a jump there, but it does kind of go to show that really the applications of this to, to medicine are, are quite clear. And so there are a lot of people trying to develop NFTs for real estate, but ultimately the ability to kind of bridge real world assets that are in the physical space, like a house and NFTs are difficult because someone can take your house and then how do you represent that on chain? Like how is some holder of some token on their wallet going to have legal recourse in the physical world? Ultimately, all law is settled in the physical world. So if it's a physical good, so you're going to need a good bridge from the physical world to the digital world to have blockchains disrupt that space. But in the field of medicine and specifically biotech, a lot of the value comes from intellectual property and intellectual property is inherently intangible, right? I mean, it's just, it is some agreement between a group of people that this person owns the patent rights or a license to the royalties or the governance over some drug and how it's used and which patients can get it. And it's, yeah, it's commercializability. So for, for us, when we were looking at how do NFTs potentially disrupt medicine, a digital, uh, excuse me, an, an intangible asset we thought would be a superior beachhead in, indication or application of NFTs. So yeah, that was kind of the thinking behind Molecule, which is look, let's look at the most valuable assets in healthcare. 
They're actually these intangible pieces of intellectual property that are owned by pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies. And so let's bring that value back to the patient, back to the individuals that actually create the value in pharma, which are the patients, right? There are investors who take financial risk to try and fund a drug to market, but patients are taking risks with their livelihood, right? And their physical bodies. And so they should be rewarded. And, you know, we could debate all day who is taking on more of the risk, who deserves more of the reward. The reward. I think that's, that's up for debate. But what we don't think is up for debate is that the patient deserves something. They deserve something more than what they're currently getting, which is access to a trial, right? As there are more drugs and there's more competition on the pharma side to get patients that meet their research criteria for their, their inclusion criteria for their clinical trial, we think that the patient should demand more and have the platform to get more from the pharma companies and biotech companies for participating in their trials and participating in research. So yeah, that's kind of the vision for Molecule. It's basically how do we have patients own more of the medicines that they end up taking that cure the diseases that they suffer from? Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think you you kind of alluded to uh, you know joining into trials, and I always think about you know if I'm seeing a patient, they're they're like, oh, we're part of this trial, MD Anderson or wherever it may be. It's such a leap of faith, right? Like it, you like you mentioned, it's their health, and they're just entrusting that to you know a pharmaceutical company, health care organization, and they're essentially being experimented on. And obviously, it's the the hope is that that experiment works and they get some of their life back or whatever the end result is, but it is such a huge kind of risk. And a lot of times there's very little return for them. And so I agree, you know, the patients need to come back to the center of this. And it feels like so much of the conversation over the last 50 years has been investor-based and pharmaceutical company-based, and it's not about the patient. They're just kind of a moving piece that that are being used. And so if I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, at the most basic level, as I understand Molecule, is it's essentially a marketplace where funders can meet and where scientists and folks developing therapeutics or kind of new methods of doing things can request funding. And then those two kind of come to an agreement and Basically, whether it's a disease that's forgotten or whether it's things that aren't even on the horizon of modern medicine and folks that want to study things like longevity, that's where they can get that funding and kind of move that forward. Is that correct? Yeah, you nailed it. So I won't expand on it too much further, but all I'll say from a high level is that there's this inefficient meeting of supply and demand for research in the healthcare space, right? You have some diseases that are highly valued by the NIH and NSF and traditional funding bodies. That's the National Institute of Health and National Science Foundation who provide a ton of the funding that, you know, public funding that goes toward basic biomedical research. And those focus on a number of likely suspect diseases, and they neglect a lot of the diseases that people suffer from. And so what you're left with is basically a gap in research that venture capitalists won't really fill. And, you know, the the traditional public funding bodies aren't filling. So the question is, who's going to fill them? And ultimately, our belief is that the patients may, if there's enough of them, if they can gather enough funding for their disease, then, then they can support the research to then result in actual therapeutic options for the diseases that they suffer from. And it's kind of the question of like, if not them, then who else is going to do it? And the answer is really, you know, there's very few options. And so we're just trying to supplement, but not by any means replace the existing funding mechanisms that are out there, but just provide a new path for 
um, these underserved diseases. And you kind of hit on this earlier, but I'm not a research scientist and I haven't really done any heavy clinical research or anything like that. But say you, can you kind of take us through just on a quick, brief version of, say you're trying to research um, a new medication for a certain disease. What does that look like in the current environment? Yeah. So usually it requires a pedigree. So step one is go, go get yourself a pedigree, go, go to some big name university, get some big publications under your belt. And then once you have, then, you know, you can start to think about requesting for funding. And so, yeah, once, once you're at that point, then it comes, then you have to have a grant application. And in that grant application, you basically write what looks like a scientific paper, but before the work is ever done. So you say, what is the background and what relevance of this work? What are the methods that will be required to execute this? And then what are the results that I expect? And once I have those results, what, what, why will the world be a better place with them? Right. And so this is, this is kind of how you think about creating a grant application. And yeah, I mean, the chances are that you actually get funded once you've spent several hundred hours on this grant application are actually really low. So I forget what the exact statistics are. But such a low rate of grant pr- grants that are applied for are actually end up getting funded. A huge majority of them are given to very specific big name universities. A lot of them are given to older professors rather than the newer ones. And so there is this kind of misallocation of resources toward, you know, a, a particular group of people studying a particular group, you know, group of diseases rather than what's actually most efficient from a supply and demand perspective, right? So it's all determined from these these government funding bodies and their determination of what diseases are important. And as you can imagine, it really just becomes a political game. And that's the reality, right? It becomes about who you know rather than the value that you actually create. So these are kind of some of the efficiencies that some of the people within our company have noticed. And so, yeah, our goal is to provide this more efficient, more fair and and democratic mechanism to fund science from the people that stand to benefit from it. If you think about it, many of the people that are providing grants from within the NIH don't themselves suffer from the diseases that they're funding. So the question is, are they going to be more motivated to actually fund the right solutions? Or is someone whose day-to-day would potentially be impacted? and their, their lives changed if a solution was found. So our thinking is let's align the incentives more properly. And we really think that Web3 is the proper technology to do this. Yeah, just like a lot of legacy kind of systems and how things have been done kind of ways in, in our society, this is a perfect example of that. A lot of bureaucracy, a lot of who you know, and it seems like a merit and kind of basic science has kind of moved away from, from the centerfold. You were, you were talking about grants. I, you know, I did uh, when I was in college, you know, everyone going to med school does research um, just for your application and whatnot. And worked in this lab with rats and something with cocaine and giving rats cocaine. But I remember like the PI, the principal investigator, all she would worry about is that next grant application and changing that. And it's like, you see someone who got into doing research and that being their passion, but then just being worried about grants all the time and not being doing, not doing the science that she wanted to do. And that's, I think, I, I think back to that. And, and that's a perfect example of her, you know, just being overconsumed by this bureaucratic system and anything we can do to address that, fix that, to make it more efficient, obviously is good. So I guess my next question is how does blockchain and how do NFTs 
enable this to work? You know, why, why is what Molecule doing? Why, why was it not possible 10 years ago? And what, where does the blockchain and NFT component come in that makes it possible? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one we get quite a bit, as you can imagine. You know, why blockchain? Why this fancy, expensive, slow, lacking technology? Like, why is this best when we have these, you know, high, you know, big data, high throughput, you know, web two technologies that already exist? It's, it's a super important question. And I think one that our field has to constantly ask itself. And the reality is, is the same way that we see the world going from things on paper to things in the digital world, we see the same level of leap from the digital world to the blockchain and distributed ledger technology world. And so I think it's just important to, to note that it's so much easier to transact information and capital over the internet than it is in person. You know, I don't have to be physically near to you. I don't have to take a copy away from myself and give it to you. I can just duplicate it and share it with you instantaneously, right? From anywhere within the world. And I think all of that already exists with value. It already exists for information. Why blockchain? And the the reason is is, is simple. I can't cheat you, right? It doesn't matter who you are or what rule of law that you follow. We create these rules and everyone must follow them and everyone is beholden to them. So for working internationally where you can be anonymous and I can still transact on intellectual property with you that's and collaborate on science with you, that's to me a really interesting world. And so this cryptography that's enabled by blockchain is not enabled and guaranteed by any other system. So I will always fear collaborating with you if I'm using a Web2 system and I don't know who you are. But there are a lot of people that suffer from diseases that they don't want people to know about. So they want to stay anonymous and they don't want people to know who they are. And that's okay. And we should be able to create systems that allow these people to collaborate as well. And one example I'll bring up is hair loss. So hair loss is a significantly underfunded disease. There are tons of people that obviously suffer from it, both male and female. Molecules is working with a DAO called HairDAO that's working on hair loss research. And most of the members want to stay anonymous. You know, it's, it's something that for an, any number of reasons, they just don't want to share their identity, but they do want to participate in the scientific process. And they do want to collaborate on research and, and be part of this community that's looking for solutions. And so should we gate them just because they, they aren't willing to identify themselves? Well, no, but we still want to collaborate with them and share value with them. So this is where Web3 technology becomes super powerful because it creates the cryptography as part of you know, the value transfer and as part of the data transfer that allows them to collaborate and for us to share value with them, but without knowing who the heck they are, right? And that's, that's a world that we think is super powerful. And I think another place where Web3 is super efficient is let's have a race, okay? You want to raise a grant and I want to raise a grant. You use traditional funding systems or even the traditional legal system and venture capital, and I'll use crypto. <laughs> and let's see who can raise the same amount of money. Let's say, let's call it $250,000 you know, to run some piece of research. I'll bet that I can beat you. And the reason for that is if you look at any of the quote unquote crowdfunding platforms in crypto, they enable this ability to just transact tokens very quickly. Right. Whereas if you want to raise uh, venture capital funding, it requires a lot of legal agreements. It requires a lot of, you know, 
coalescing signatures on documents. None of this is required in crypto. It's just button clicking. And it's very simple button clicking. And so one of the, our DAOs, HairDAO, was able to raise $300,000 in a week just from opening its community to a token. And now all of those hair loss sufferers can now fund research that goes toward the diseases that they suffer. No legal documents were required between any of the community members in the DAO. They just clicked a button and you know the auction opened. And so I think this is really a powerful both for capital formation but also you know for transacting all of the value once you know money has been raised right it's 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 more than just you know crypto being this kind of internet money it's about once that that money has been created being able to see who has what ownership over what and it because it's completely transparent you don't have to guess right you can just go on any of these block explorers and just see exactly who owns how much of of what and i think that that's super powerful especially you know when it comes to licensing rights and intellectual property but we can get into that later yeah without a doubt and and you mentioned daos and that was going to be actually my next question so kind of define on a basic level what a dao is and then how how to say i wanted to create a dao around um creating better tires, better performing tires for race cars. How, how would I do that? Yeah, for sure. So the way the way I think about a DAO, which is stands for a decentralized autonomous organization, is it's basically a Reddit, it's a, a subreddit with a bank account, right? So you'll go on, on subreddits and you'll see a bunch of people that are super passionate about some area, whatever it is, it'll be super random and very esoteric often. But the question is what happens when you create that community and they now can pool together money and fund something interesting or that they all find is, is valuable, that creates value to them in whatever way they see it. So that's basically a DAO. So in the case of hair DAO, everyone's really interested in hair loss. They were all communicating with each other on Trustless and some of these other hair loss Reddit forums. But this is taking that next step. It's saying, you know, let's go do something about it rather than just talk about it, right? And, you know, we can still do so in an anonymous way, which they, they do on Reddit, which is super interesting. And so, yeah, like to, to form a DAO, you basically, well, I mean, it's a, it's, it, it's a multi-part question. So the question is, what is a good application of a DAO? And another is, how do you do it? And so we think that the, the application piece is, is also super important because ultimately what a DAO is, it's, it's a mission, right? It's a mission that you're trying to solve, you know, whether that's hair loss, longevity, um, women's reproductive health. It doesn't matter. You just need a mission that enough people can get behind and support, you know, whether that's financially or with really engagement, right? You just want people that are engaged. And so it's about finding that right application. And so for us, the right applications in medicine specifically are diseases that are chronically underfunded by traditional funding bodies, which are either governments, you know, grant, grant funding agencies or venture capitalists, right? Who fund a lot of the early stage um, research that ends up getting commercialized. So any any disease that is un underfunded by those those two broad um, funding bodies is is a good application in medicine because the patients are likely suffering disproportionately relative to to other diseases because of lack of options. And so yeah, like one one of the primitives we see of a DAO is a Discord group, right? Discords are free to join. It's free to make an account. And you can just show up and become part of the conversation, just like you can in Reddit, 
right? And you can start to receive roles and gain reputation within the community. And it's highly interactive. And you can also segregate the conversation into different topics. So, you know, within some of these DAOs, you have experts on the science. In some of them, you have experts on the, the medicine and the physiology. And in some of them, you know, you may have experts in the, the commercialization aspect. And so it's good to kind of segregate those discussions and allow the experts to, to really go deep on a specific topic. And then another primitive is, a, is called a multi-signature wallet. And a multi-signature wallet is a, it's similar to the types of wallets that an individual can sign. Some of people might know of these as like MetaMask or Coinbase wallet. These allow individuals to go and make transactions individually, but a multi-signature wallet requires signatures from several people to execute a transaction. So I think about it as like a shared Venmo account. So if, if you and I wanted to have a, basically a shared Venmo account where we both had to agree to a transaction for money to be sent, that would be what's called a two of two multi-sig, where both of us have to agree to a transaction to for it to be paid out. But you know, you can scale that to whatever rule set you want. So you can have three of five, you can have two of four. It really is up to up to yeah, your your design choice. But yeah, this is another core property of a of a DAO because it it holds all the purchasing power, right? So you can only fund as much research as capital that you can um, accumulate and, and go deploy. So yeah, having a multi-sig is, is really core to, to having a DAO as well. But I mean, there's lots of other layers you can add on top like governance. So there are tools like Snapshot, which allow token-based governance. And so this is kind of democracy in its purest form. It's basically saying, you know, everyone go to this page and vote on this subject that, you know, the DAO is going to do. So having a good way for, you know, everyone to vote is also super important. But beyond that, you know, everything else is just kind of gravy or for efficiency's sake. But yeah, those are the, the core elements. But yeah, thank, thanks for kind of going through that. That's probably been one of the most easy to explanation, easy to understand explanations of what a DAO is. One, one kind of further question uh, from there. So for example, say a DAO is going to, like hair DAO is supporting research when it comes to hair loss. Now in return, I guess they set rules where they either, you know, gain, you know, say they're, that this research leads to like a medication or type of molecule that's pat patented or whatever the case may be. I guess the DAO previous to funding this would agree to have a certain profit rights or certain access to the product or medication or, or, or whatnot. Is that correct? And that would be kind of set before that agreement was made and kind of moved forward with and funded. Yeah. So we're not really innovating so much on the on the actual legal contracts that fund basic research. Those exist. You know, we're just trying to be interoperable and integrate with what people are already used to. Because as you can imagine, getting people to talk about getting funded by crypto is doesn't always land super well. <laughs> so so but they are used to seeing a piece of paper or you know, a, a document called a sponsored research agreement that basically trades research for intellectual property rights, which is what Molecule is trying to integrate with and just bring and bridge into the crypto world. So yeah, I mean, if, if we kind of went to these tech transfer offices that exist within universities and not only told them that they had to get funded by crypto, but that there was gonna be this whole new mechanism for transacting those rights, we, we thought that that would be super difficult. So we're just trying to meet them where they are. 
And most of them have them being the tech transfer offices who handle all of the intellectual property and research licensing and funding at the university. We're just trying to make it as easy for them as possible. We're trying to make their lives easier, not harder, right? And so that requires kind of conforming to their existing structure, which are the sponsored research agreements. And yeah, kind of like I said, the typical terms of a sponsored research agreement are something like, I will pay you $200,000 to research this. Here are the experiments that you're going to run. Here's how many grad students and postdocs are going to be part of that research. Here are the milestones. You know, it's going to take three months to do this and six months to do that. And anything that comes out of the research that's commercializable or patentable or any data that can be considered a trade secret, those rights are shared by some other terms that are then explained, right? And that's kind of a, a share split between the funder of the research and the and the university. And that's always, you know, heavy negotiation. And that's often what really slows down the ability for research to get funded is this just back and forth negotiation between people that are just trying to see research funded and people that are trying to capture that value for the for the university, which is often where these sponsored research agreements take place. So yeah, I, I hope that answers your question. It, it does. Yeah. And, and then uh, this kind of segues perfectly into the next thing I was curious about is a lot of kind of, uh, I was looking at your guys's website and who y'all have funded and worked with. And a lot of that was at kind of these legacy universities. And so what, what, what do those conversations look like? You know, you see, you find a principal investigator, a team that wants to look into something, you find a funding source. Um, are a lot of those conversations with kind of getting through the bureaucracy of the universities very long, or are some of them kind of realizing that this is the way things are headed and more open to it? And obviously you guys have been around for a few years. Have those changed from, you know, like the first days to, you know, what conversation you may have had last week kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So, and qualifying everything I'm about to say with, I, I joined Molecule fairly recently, so I wasn't there during the early days. But from what I've heard, the, the conversations typically go like this. You talk to the researcher. The researcher has some great idea. You decide whether or not you want to support it. You take that decision to the DAO, the Reddit, the subreddit with a bank account, and you say, <laughs> hey, hey, community, do we agree that we want to fund this? And they may say no for any number of reasons or by some great chance, they might say yes. And so if they say yes, then it becomes, okay, how do we how do we get this deal done, right? And so then becomes a process of you having to speak with the technology transfer office at the university. And so this is really a variable experience depending on the university. Some universities have very active tech transfer offices. You can imagine who they are. They're the Harvards, the MITs, and the Stanfords of the world. They have so many companies trying to license their technology that they are really in the driver's seat from a negotiating perspective, right? Because they're, they have so many other offers likely that they can kind of negotiate you in their favor. And so that, that can be very difficult, but it does depend on the university. And it's, I don't want to generalize, but it really is case by case specific. And it can even be who within the technology transfer office you're dealing with, who can be the difference between a good relationship or a good experience and a bad experience. And so yeah, I mean, there have been some negotiations that have taken months. We actually just quantified some of the time that, you know, our head of R&D is spending in these conversations. And it's it's tens of hours, right, over a period of months. But there are some universities where it's been so smooth, we've been shocked. And like, actually, there was one article, and, and I, I can link it for you, that uh, we funded Newcastle 
and Newcastle the from start to finish. I think from initial negotiation to money in the bank on their side, I think was four weeks. So this is radically lower than you know what you would expect and what other funding bodies might enable. So I think this has been super eye-opening for us that it is case by case, but also that we do have the opportunity to dramatically increase the the speed things get funded. And so if there's one good case for for crypto, it's yeah, it's it's capital formation. And we hope that this can really, really speed up the process of of getting capital in the hands of researchers. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. One other kind of obviously, you know, there there is um, FTX and, you know, the crypto winter and lots of bad press. Now, I, I understand and I feel like a lot of listeners of this podcast understand and you understand that there, there's this fundamental technology that's not going anywhere and that is going to obviously still create change and impact how industries evolve. But just in terms of, you know, what the mass media has been kind of working through in some of these um, headlines, have you seen it kind of, you know, flow into any of the things that you all are doing in a negative way or universities being a little more apprehensive or, you know, even researchers being like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this or not really. Just curious. I, I, there's two pieces to this. So one is looking at the people that weren't previously in crypto. And and so looking at the people that weren't previously in crypto, absolutely. I mean, you read the headlines, you read the articles, and you lose a lot of confidence in the space, and rightly so. But I think for the people that are willing to kind of go to the bottom of the rabbit hole, I think you may come to a different answer. And I think the answer that you may come to, if given sufficient time to to actually learn it, what happened with FTX? What was the cause of it? It was really the same things that enable any fraud. So the same tools that someone like Bernie Madoff used to to fraud investors are the same tools that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried used to, to, to fraud investors. And so what actually you you find from within the crypto community is that people are even more bullish because of this, because this is yet another use case that's the world's going to be frauded by traditional technologies. And the reality is, is that FTX was not a, an exchange built on crypto rails. It interacted with the blockchain, but actually the blockchain was super helpful in helping them locate a lot of the missing assets, right? Because important to understand all a blockchain is, is a a transparent ledger that anyone can read, right? So, you know, a lot of companies will have like a database that's guarded behind their firewalls that you can only access from inside the company unless you're a very savvy hacker. But what a blockchain is, is it's everyone showing what's on the inside. And so the reality is fraud is almost impossible within a blockchain, right? There are some tools that allow you to kind of hide what you're doing and confuse anyone who's trying to spy on you. But the reality is, is that it's much, much harder to actually pull off what Sam Bankman-Fried did and FTX did had they actually been on blockchain rails, right? And if you look at if you look at the actual statistics, what, what's very interesting is that when FTX went down, Uniswap, which is a decentralized exchange actually built on top of Ethereum, activity went up like crazy. And so I think this is giving a lot of people that are from within the space confidence that you know what we're building matters and it's not going anywhere. And yes, this is a big speed bump. Like I'm not going to lie, a lot of interest has dropped out of the space. It feels like crypto winter from the outside, but from within, I just got back from ETH Denver last night. People cannot be more excited about the building. And I think 
what's interesting about these time periods where you know the prices of crypt, you know cryptocurrencies are not pumping is people focus on building and creating value. And so it's really fun to be at that moment. I'd always heard about it from the outside when, you know, before I had joined this industry, but now that I'm here, I really understand what people are talking about. It's the idea that you can't just launch a token and get rich, right? You really have to build value. People are fundamentally and initially skeptical of whatever you're doing. And so the the responsibility to create value becomes that much higher. And so it's really fun to be building at a time like this. And I, I really feel like we're working on very interesting problems, applying what is a very misunderstood technology to what are some of the US's biggest problems, which are, you know, healthcare, pharma. These are some of the most distrusted in institutions in America. And our goal is to just bring these transparent systems into this poorly trusted environment to create that trust and to motivate patients to engage with, with their health and their sickness. And so, yeah, like I, I welcome the healthy skepticism that comes with what we're working on. And I appreciate you kind of taking the time to, to really ask the questions that need to be asked, which are, is, is this all just a scam, right? Is this just another, you know, doggy coin that's going to attract a ton of value and, and create none? And our goal is really to create patient value and to represent that patient value on the blockchain so that everyone can see it. And so that there isn't, there's no room to mistrust, right? There's only room to, to see the value and to want to partake in it. Yeah, I, lo I love that you keep bringing the patient back to it because even, even you know, working in the ER, it seems like so much of it has moved away from the patient and that's where we need to come back to. And the fact that kind of building with these tools is focusing on the patient is so important. Just a, a final question, you, you um, obviously mentioned HairDAO, but any other kind of examples from or relationships that Molecule has built that is seen as like a success story or a story that you think is really cool that would be to share with the listeners? Absolutely. So the space is still very early, right? And so our ability to create wins, especially in biotech where creating wins just takes time, is tough. But, you know, we, we do have some early signals that what we're working on is is working and, you know, has a, has strong potential. And besides HairDAO, one of the, you know, kind of leading DAOs in the space is, is called VitaDAO. And it's a longevity-focused decentralized autonomous organization. And I mean, they have a market cap of around 100 million, I think, right now. And I'm not saying this just to say, oh, look, you know, there's all this perceived value. But the number one difficulty, I think, in this space is apathy and, you know, engagement. And so just to have a signal of people engaging and valuing this community is, is really exciting to see. And so, you know, VitaDAO has funded numerous projects across you know, different applications and approaches to longevity, you know, some that are looking at senescent cells and how to remove them um, with CAR T therapies, some that are looking at databases of health records and trying to extract which off patent or on patent drugs um, are able to result in extended lifespan, right? And there's some that are focused on mitophagy or autophagy or any of these well-known associated biological pathways to the rate of aging. And so this is kind of the focus of VitaDAO is, you know, rather than think about diseases in isolation, how do we slow down the aging process and delay the onset of all of these chronic diseases that take 
many human lives. And so there is a ton of interest in VitaDAO. Their community is almost 10,000 members. The Discord is super active. They're funding like crazy. They just raised a strategic collaborator round from some big VCs, included, including Pfizer Ventures. So, you know, there really is interest pouring in. I think that, and, and it's it's not even a question that most of the work is left to be done. I don't want to say we've made it in any way. Like we we still have so, so much work to do, but there are the right signals that we can see. And we're always looking for, you know, more smart people that come from, you know, what we can, what we call the, the traditional healthcare system and bridge them into what we think is, is a super powerful new application of technology to medicine. That, that we think will transform it and is actually potentially the missing piece of the complex healthcare puzzle. So yeah, like any anyone who's interested in participating in one of these DAOs, please go to the, the Molecule website, it's molecule.to, and you'll find these different patient communities that exist and the types of diseases that, that they're going after. And I think that, you know, anyone who comes from the healthcare space, including me, will just be blown away by the quality of the conversation that exists in these discords, the ability for these untrained patients to understand the deepest science that's out there, to understand everything about every single biological pathway that, that influences their disease, what the science knows, what it doesn't know, who the researchers are. So many of these members have basically taught themselves everything there is to know about their disease. And I think that we, as healthcare professionals, often underestimate the power of the patient because they haven't been to the medical, haven't been to medical school and haven't done residency and haven't seen thousands and thousands of cases, but at, we, we call them online researchers. And the reality is, is that the information all exists online, right? I don't want to say it all exists online, but a lot of it does. And you really can educate yourself. And the question is who's more motivated than someone who suffers from a disease to go learn about their disease. And we really think that that is a powerful motivator to actually pushing forward change in the biotech space. And so we're trying to kind of capture some of that motivation and channel it toward actually finding solutions for these people. And so, yeah, anyone who's considered in joining the existing communities we have, I would highly, highly recommend just perusing at the very least, hop into the discords, see what people are talking about. It's interesting, but if anyone started in interested in starting a, a new DAO that's focused on a particular disease that's relevant to biotechnology, please reach out to us. Like this is this is the ecosystem that we're trying to cultivate and the approach we're we're trying to enable. So yeah, and if also if you're looking for funding, like that is the that is the primary goal of of these DAOs. So yeah, let us know and please apply for for grant funding on on our websites. Awesome. Yeah, I can't, I can't think of a better place to stop. Thanks for sharing all of that. It's always inspiring to see, you know, smart people like you guys, you know, working on this stuff. And especially now during this quote crypto winter, I feel like all the bad actors are getting weeded out. And it's like the actual folks that want to make a, a change and a difference that are actually working hard like you guys. So thanks for thanks for having this conversation with me. I, I learned a lot. I'm sure others who listen to this will learn a lot. And I, I hope to touch base with you again in a year, two years, five years and see the amazing things you guys are doing. Thank you. Yeah, same here. And hope you can hop into all the discords and start participating too. But yeah, thanks for having me. And yeah, hope, hope people found this somewhat interesting at the very least. I, I'm, I'm sure they did. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Non-Fungible Human. 
We are always open to suggestions on who we should have on next, and feedback is always welcome. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Until next time, stay healthy, friends, and we'll catch you in the next episode.